0: check out our Patreon page. We have a lot of new Patreon episodes going out. I've got about six that I'm almost done editing. I got a little behind with our family's health issues, but those will be going up soon. $5 a month gets you all of our bonus episodes. We also have a level where you can program an episode of the show. Our Black Coats Daughter episode was programmed by one of our patrons, Doug, and that was a really awesome show to do. So if you want to tell us what to watch, There's a way for you to do it. Link is on the website, but you can also just visit us at patreon.com slash If you have a minute, it would be really awesome if you could leave us a rating and a review. iTunes is usually the one that people do, but you can also do that on Spotify or your other podcast listening places. If you tweet us that you did that, we will send you a sticker and a button. Hello, and welcome to Fatal Films, a podcast surrounding the women of mystery. Each episode will look at a movie or TV show written, directed, or made famous by a female identifying artist. We're your hosts, Laura Celeste and Lacey Cannon-Gonzalez. Stay tuned. In this episode, we look at the 2000 slasher film, American Psycho, directed by Mary Heron, screenplay by Mary Heron, and Guinevere Turner, based on the novel by Brent Easton Ellis. Starring Christian Bell, Willem Dafoe, Jared Leto, Josh Lucas, Chloe Sévignon, Samantha Mathis, Kara Seymour, Justin Thoreau, Guinevere Turner, Reg E. Cathy, and Reese Witherspoon. To get us started, here is a synopsis. A wealthy New York City investment banking executive, Patrick Bateman, hides his alternative psychopathic ego from his co-workers and friends as he delves deeper into his violent, hedonistic fantasies. There are lots of trigger warnings for this episode. Some of them are violent death, racial and homophobic slurs, animal cruelty, misogynistic remarks, misogyny, jerky guys, Uh, there's just lots of things. We do want to caution you that this episode is full of spoilers. We get in-depth on the plot, so if you care about that, go watch the movie and come back. We'll be waiting. This movie came out in the year 2000. That was the year that the final Peanuts comic strip was published following the death of its creator, Charles M. Schultz. The 2000 Summer Olympics were held in Sydney, Australia. The first resident crew enters the International Space Station. The third and final reactor at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant is shut down and the station is shut down completely. In London, a criminal gang raids the Millennium Dome to steal the Millennium Star Diamond, but police surveillance catches them in the act. Bush v. Gore, the United States Supreme Court, rules that the recount of the 2000 presidential election in Florida should be halted and the original results be certified, thus making George W. Bush the winner of the U.S. presidential election. The Nintendo GameCube was introduced, and the number one song was Breathe by Faith Hill, and the number one movie was How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the Jim Carrey one. Hello, everybody, and thank you for bearing with us through this time that has been 2021 so far. A little update for everyone. Um, My parents and my 97-year-old grandmother all got COVID. Two of them ended up in the hospital. It's been kind of a wild time here, so that's why we haven't had any new episodes in a while. But we are back with a bang because I have with me today a guest that I am so excited about, and it's hard not to fangirl a little bit because she's one of my favorite writers that I've discovered recently. With us today is Lane Fargo. Hello. hello a little bit about lane she is a novelist screenwriter and co-creator of the unlikable female characters podcast on the lit hub radio which is a great podcast i listen to it all the time and y'all should too um she lives in chicago with her partner and their pets she is the author of temper and they never learn and most exciting they never learn is being developed for tv So Blaine, thank you so much for being with us. I'm so excited to talk to you and to talk about this particular movie.
1: Thank you for having me. Yeah, I am always ready to talk about American Psycho like any day of the week, anytime. So I'm very, very excited.
0: So for our regular listeners and maybe new people too, this may seem like a really odd choice for us because while it does have a female director and writer, it is like all the main characters are dudes. It's a very male focused Movie. But the reason that we wanted to talk about it is because what could have been like just a really chauvinistic piece of garbage turns out to be a really great movie that these two women uh, made. Now, have you read the book? I have
1: read the book. Um, Not a fan of the book. (laughs) Have you, you haven't read
0: it? No. And I really don't have a desire to. I would Um, not recommend it, um, (laughs) to be honest. Yeah, I read a little bit about some of the um, murder scenes that are in it, and they sounded pretty horrific. And I'm like, I don't know that I really want to put that into my brain.
1: (laughs) The thing about the book is... It's, it's almost boring. It's like so shocking that it's boring because it's really like repetitive. He's just like, and then I killed this woman and then I put her head in my freezer and then I did, you know, just like on and on and on this litany of awful things. And I understand what Brett Easton Ellis was trying to do, that it's a satire, but you get like 50 pages into this thing and you're just like, okay, Brett, I get it. Like, I understand. <laughs> and then there's so much book left, but it almost, it's one of those books that it feels like it's daring you to put it down. And I am like a very spiteful person. So I was (laughs) like, fuck you, Bretnie St. Ellis. I'm going to read this whole book. But then like, that's what he wants really. So uh, yeah, don't recommend. Uh, But the movie is great.
0: (laughs) I guess this is gonna, this is maybe the fourth or fifth time I've seen it. The first time I didn't quite get it. So as I do, I did some reading on it and it was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And then when I watched it again, a lot more of the comedy came out and a lot more of the commentary. And um, yeah, I just think it's really great.
1: I've probably seen it at this point conservatively, like 20 times. Um, But I had a similar experience. The first time I saw it, I liked it, but I don't think I understood the nuance of it. I I was trying to remember how old I was when I first saw this and it was either high school or a very early college because I used to um, every weekend and like all summer, I would go to the blockbuster video. Remember that? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. And uh, rent movies. And this was one that I got out a couple of times, I think. Um, and I thought it was, I thought it was funny the first time I saw it, but every single time I watch this movie, I find like a new layer of just hilarity and like Christian Bale's performance rewards repeated viewing. Like, I watched it again before recording this, and I was watching it with my partner, and he pointed out this moment in Bale's performance that, like, I had all the times I'd seen it before, I'd never noticed. And so, there's just always something new. Like, it's one of those movies you can watch forever and always find something fresh.
0: Yeah, it really is you know, it's a full scope of the writing, the directing, and his performance mm-hmm. um because if like one of those elements was left out, I don't think it would work as well as it does. but um yeah because the script is so good and just the way he delivers lines and things, <laughs> like half the time it's like if you actually talk to somebody like that, they would be like, what is wrong with you? But in this world of, like nobody's actually listening to each other about anything. They're all just kind of talking at each other and mm-hmm. there's no real connection. So yeah, they don't notice the way that he's talking that is just so odd.
1: Yeah. I was reading um, some or like they did like an oral history of this movie. I think it was in there that the, uh, some of the other actors who were especially playing the other guys at the, at the company where Patrick Bateman works like those actors were really confused by his performance like on the set they were like is he bad is he good like what's going on I don't know and it was like they had to see the movie to understand so like even (laughs) on the set I think there
0: was like that disconnect and it really comes across that's really interesting I didn't know that yeah that's cool (laughs) how did you hear about this movie or what brought you to it for the first time
1: I cannot remember like how I heard how I first heard of it but I would assume given when I watched it that I watched it because I thought Christian Bale was hot like (laughs) I like saw Newsies and then I was like now I want to see this other movie he's in um which actually I think Newsies and American Psycho is an aces double feature like I've done that a couple times too it's like the perfect combination (laughs) interesting okay I'll have to try that I think you have to do Newsies first because then it makes things I Psycho seem like even more sinister somehow. <laughs> You've just seen him like singing and dancing about newspapers. It's yeah. perfect.
0: Yeah. I don't think you could. I mean, you could do it backwards, but I feel like that would be very jarring to be like, oh, he just murdered all these people and now he's... Um, a newspaper boy
1: (laughs) I mean either way though honestly I think they just go well together
0: (laughs) yeah I've really come to appreciate him more over the last few years and been like oh wow he's you know more than just Batman I because I've been watching more of his stuff and it's like wow he really is a good and rounded actor Mm -hmm.
1: and he gets this character in a way that um, I think a lot of actors would just think oh this is this cool guy he's like this rich handsome guy in the 80s and he's like so awesome and I'm just gonna play him really cool and Christian Bale doesn't do that and that's something um, the director Mary Heron said that she was having trouble like she wasn't really sure who would be right for this role and sent him the script and when they first talked on the phone he was like I'm sorry like this might be insulting to you but I'm just gonna say it I was cracking up the whole time I was reading the script. I thought it was really funny. And she was like, exactly. Thank you. Yes, you're the one. (laughs) Like that he understood that humor and that Patrick Bateman was supposed to be this sort of pathetic, ridiculous character instead of this like anti-hero. So I think with a different actor, it would not have worked. And did you come across in your research that the studio wanted Leonardo DiCaprio to play Patrick Bateman?
0: I did see that. And... (laughs) Yeah, I'm having a really hard time imagining it, especially because um, they said it was around the time of Titanic, Yeah, and it's like, he looked like a baby. Yeah, he looked like a baby, which is my big problem with Titanic
1: when you see him in Kate Winslet. Like, she looks like a beautiful woman, even though she was quite young when she made that, and he looks like a 12-year-old boy. I just can't see it. And I think he would have played it like, Patrick Bateman is a cool guy, like, that's just... (laughs)
0: Yeah, I could not have seen him sitting around a table with Justin Theroux and um, those other guys and looking like he fit in there in that time period. No, he would have looked like their intern. <laughs> <laughs> I do love how this movie starts because the, the first title um, card, it looks like they're business cards. Mm -hmm. Um, but with like blood dripping on it, which of course then morphs into the fancy food that's being made. But I just thought that that was really funny that it tied into the business card scene. That's got to be one of the best scenes in the whole movie, that business card scene. I like die laughing every time I watch it because they're all so intense. (laughs) Yes. And this is one of the scenes I didn't get the first time I watched it because I was like, they look almost exactly the same Exactly <laughs> going on here. And then I realized, oh, that's that's the comedy and the absurdity of it is like one guy's got like raised lettering and one has a little bit of like texture on it, but basically they're exactly the same and he's freaking out about it. <laughs> the, the colors,
1: the like pale nimbus or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. That was another thing that was in that oral history I read. I think Justin Thoreau and some of the other guys in that scene said as well that uh Christian Bale, when they were filming that, he would break into a sweat at the same moment every time. Like he could make himself actually break into a sweat. They didn't have to like spray him down or anything. That is like the dedication to his craft that Christian oh. Bale brings no matter what he's doing.
0: Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> It's like those girls um, that can make themselves cry. And there was somebody like in classic Hollywood that was like, Do you want one tear or two? And the director was like, Just one, like halfway down your cheek. And she did it. Wow. So, yeah, sweating on command. That's you put that at the bottom of your resume. <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, right off the bat, we get we get who these guys are because they're like, "Oh, this meal was only seven hundred and fifty dollars. That's very reasonable And of course, they're all throwing their credit cards down. It's like they don't they don't care about anything. This doesn't even phase them. um,
1: yeah, it's this like the conspicuous consumption of the eighties. like I don't really think this story would work as well in any other decade. like it's so. 1980s like the yuppie lifestyle and they're all just like going to their offices every day and doing nothing as far as we can tell like he just goes to his office and like puts his feet up on the desk and does nothing and gets paid way more money than we'll ever see and Um, They all go to these different restaurants every night and are like bragging about where they could get a reservation. And it's just um, especially watching it now in the midst of the pandemic and all the economic
0: unrest, it's like even more jarring. But it's just it's so 80s. Yeah, that's what I was wondering is like they keep talking about, oh, so and so has this account or you have this account, but it doesn't look like they actually do anything. No, it doesn't look like they do anything. Like All we see him doing in
1: his office is listening to his Walkman like (laughs) cassette player and drawing murdery pornographic pictures in his day planner yeah. and like, asking his
0: secretary to wear a skirt instead of pants. Like, that's his job. I don't know. Yeah. And his um, Reese Witherspoon's character, Evelyn, at one time says, your dad owns the company. So it's like, oh, OK, so I guess it's just just works there because his dad owns it. I don't mm. know. And then nothing else is ever said about that. So, like, is that even true? I don't know. Yeah, we never learn anything about his
1: family or his past. I think in the in the book, there might be a little bit more of that, but I don't know. I forget. I blocked yeah. it all out. <laughs> but I and- like that. Like I don't really want to know about his childhood trauma. I just want to see him in the moment.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. It's not really important because honestly, well, I mean, this is jumping ahead to the end in theories a little bit, but um, people know that we get into spoilers with this podcast. So What's true and what's not? What actually happened? How much is in his head? Almost all of it could be made up as far as Mm -hmm. we know. So if we did learn anything, it may not even be true. So what doesn't matter? We don't need to know any of that.
1: Yeah, and he's not a character that, like, you don't have to have sympathy for him or understand him. Like, that is so not the point of the movie. So whatever it is, I'm glad they left that out.
0: Yes, and that's one of the things that I think works so well about this movie is none of these guys are sympathetic or relatable. I mean, maybe to other guys that had, like, lived that, they are relatable. But I don't look at any of them and be like, hey, I'd like to know that guy <laughs> no. like what is there to know there's nothing yeah. they're
1: so empty they're so it's like all just the surface and yeah there's not a lot of sympathetic characters like really the only one I would say is uh Chloe Sevigny's character his secretary she's like a real person <laughs> everyone else just sucks
0: yeah I I do feel bad for the um the two prostitutes that he oh sure yeah gets and I also do feel kind of bad for and I can't remember her character's name. Um but the one that's going to marry the guy with the bow tie. Oh, I can't remember her character's name either but Samantha Mathis her character. Yes. Yeah. I feel like she might want something a little different but doesn't try at all. Yeah, for
1: she's it. pretty like satisfied to just be someone's trophy wife or like at least that's what she's telling
0: herself. Yeah. Um but yeah, overall there's not there's not a lot of sympathy or relatability um, in there. And I think that's part of what makes it work because I'm sorry, if you are a person that's like, oh yeah, I see myself in these guys, then you might need to look at your life and change some things. This is one of those movies. Let me know if you agree with this. But like, to me, I love this movie.
1: It's one of my favorites of all time. But when a man tells me he loves this movie, or like if you saw it on some guy's online dating profile or something, like Red Flag, right? Like this is- Totally, yes. (laughs) It's like Fight Club in that way, which is um, another favorite movie of mine that is, and based on a book as well. Um, and they're both interestingly, they're based on books by gay men that are really taking on toxic masculinity and like straight masculinity and kind of like poking fun at it in the satirical way, like both of those stories are. But the straight men who love these these movies, I don't think they've read the books, so <laughs> we'll leave that out. But the, the love these movies, I think they don't really sometimes understand the satirical aspect of it they're just like patrick bateman is a cool guy or tyler durden is a cool guy i want to be like him and they don't really understand that like they're the subject of the joke
0: (laughs) yeah yeah that's one of those things i've uh going around on twitter right now is the if you were on a first date and somebody said this is my favorite book or this is my favorite movie what would they say to make you walk away immediately (laughs) i don't know if i'd walk away immediately but i would have a couple of follow-up questions and if they didn't go a certain way then yeah probably walk away
1: (laughs) yeah it's sort of like it's okay if men like these these movies for sure but if they're like it's my favorite you're like really why Hmm, interesting yeah (laughs) a good litmus test
0: definitely I love the part in the beginning where he's going through like his skincare routine and everything I showed this to my sister. few months ago and it's the first time she'd seen it. And she was like, you can tell a woman wrote this because no man goes that deep into his skincare routine. So is that in the book? I think
1: there is a part of that in the book. Yeah. because The book is like... I mean, it's very, you know, 80s conspicuous consumption. So he's like right. listing brand names of stuff all the time. So not just his skincare, but like his clothes and his house and his all like all of this stuff. Um, which is another way it gets like very monotonous. It's just like my Fendi this and my Chanel that and whatever. Um, so I can't remember. I think there is a scene like that in the book with the skincare, but it, it does feel very like almost feminine the way that he is like he's putting on all these serums and this mask and like describing them and loving detail, like a
0: YouTube beauty blogger. (laughs) It's pretty good. Yes. (laughs) Get ready with me. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He has a more complex skincare routine than I do. So...
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, same. Absolutely. And he definitely has a more complex exercise routine than I do, which is to say I have none. (laughs)
0: Yeah, (laughs) same. Working on it. But uh, yeah. And also the fact that he likes to watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre while he's exercising. Okay. (laughs) Oh, yeah, there's all the scenes where he's doing like crunches with like a slasher movie in the
1: background and or he's like just making normal phone calls and there's porn playing. Yes.
0: Yeah. We've talked a little bit about the comedy, but there is there's so many funny bits in this. And this probably says a lot about me. But the first time I saw it, I laughed out loud at the scene where he's running through the hallway naked with the chainsaw because it was just so absurd to me. (laughs)
1: I think it's I mean, it's supposed to be funny. It's so over the top. And he's wearing like it's wearing tennis shoes or just like white socks or something. But otherwise, he's completely naked, covered in blood and just
0: like grinning like, <laughs> yeah, so over the top. But this time, the scene that made me uh, like laugh out loud was when they're in the bathroom at one of the clubs and they're complaining that their Coke isn't good. And the guy next in the stall next to him goes, be quiet. I'm trying to do drugs here. I just I had forgotten about that because it's just this teeny little part but I was like oh my gosh that is hilarious yeah there's so many moments in this like it is just
1: it's just a biting nasty humor which I personally love
0: oh and then when he tells um, Willem Dafoe's character that he's gonna go have lunch with Cliff Huxtable (laughs) that doesn't age super well no
1: (laughs) Yeah, I heard that and I was like, ooh, ouch. Okay. That has a different tone now. Yeah. I um. guess in the book, I, I. Uh, I had kind of forgotten this the cop character Willem Dafoe's character is younger like he's more the same age as Patrick Bateman which that would come across really different I think because there's sort of a like that age difference between them is interesting to see because Willem Dafoe is like one of the only older men that we see like it's almost all these young guys who work at his, his company are kind of like indistinguishable from him so they have a really different energy in their scenes
0: yeah that's true we never see like any of the bosses or anything that are older than them even in like the meeting scenes it's just all of these guys that look the same
1: <laughs> exactly the same yeah. yeah but there's a lot of like now famous guys there so I mean we've mentioned Justin Thoreau, uh Matt Ross has been on a bunch of things Josh Lucas um Jared Leto is in this like all these guys who are really famous now
0: yeah. So that's that's why I can tell them apart is because I know who they are now. But yeah, back at that time it would have just been a sea of just white dudes.
1: Yeah. It's like bow tie guy. Yeah. Guy with like dark hair slicked back versus like slightly lighter brown hair slicked back. Yeah. <laughs> like that's it.
0: And his relationship with his so-called fiance, I believe he calls her. It's like I mean, because she's bought into this as well. She's talking to him and he's not even pretending to listen, but she doesn't care that he's not listening to her at all. And then when he breaks up with her, it's like, oh, the only reason that we should really stay together is because we have the same friends and that will be awkward.
1: It seems like they both hate each other equally. Like she doesn't like him either. It's not like she's in love with him and he's being cruel to her. They both hate each other, but... They want that like image of I have this successful, good looking partner that I can like go out on the town with and they don't really care if there's any emotion behind it or like he's cheating on her. And I get the sense she may know about it, maybe not. But like either way, I wouldn't really give a shit unless it you know, came back to be sort of humiliating to her, like if someone else found out. But I don't think she cares if he's sleeping with other people. She's probably sleeping with other people. Like it's all, again, very surface level, um, no real emotional connection on either side.
0: Yeah. I did enjoy about their breakup scene is she causes a scene in the restaurant and he's like, oh, don't cause a scene. And it made me think, oh, this was practice for her breakup scene in Legally Blonde, uh, where she gets (laughs) to go over the top.
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's true. It is like a very similar thing.
0: So I was kind of curious too, if the filmmakers had been like, Oh, you know what you did in American psycho now just make it bigger. (laughs) Maybe. Uh, I
1: love her so much. She's really like barely in this movie, but she's so great in all her scenes.
0: Yeah. She has a small part, but she really stands out in the scenes that she's in. I think it's interesting too when he's has his secretary at his apartment because he's going to take her to dinner that she doesn't know if he's still with her or not. And it's Mm -hmm. like, they're supposed to be engaged. So I guess she never calls the office or anything. It's just, yeah, it's just weird relationships to me.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think you can really see the influence of, you know, a female director, female writer in the female characters in this even though they're all supporting characters like pretty minor roles they have like most most of them are awful people like I said but they do have these like moments of humanity they're all like cast with these really great actresses who bring a lot to the role like bring a lot of of strength and nuance and we get to see a lot especially in those scenes with the prostitutes that he picks up like we get to see the women sort of reacting to him like in a way that he doesn't notice but is more for the audience where they're just kind of like can you fucking believe this guy like what <laughs>
0: Yeah, like he's talking about the music and doing basically like his thesis on these different groups or whatever. And they're like, whatever, we're just here to do a job and get paid. Can we get this over with?
1: Yeah, that is so key to me in that first scene with the two prostitutes. or yeah, I forget which which artist he's... <laughs> going on about in that scene and he's like trying to seduce them I guess and they're like you're paying us you don't need to seduce us <laughs> like what's going on and then he beckons them into the bedroom and there's just that moment where the two women just like kind of pause and shoot each other this look like all right here we go like this asshole and that is so like without that moment I feel like what follows would be even more just like gratuitous and because that sex scene is
0: wild <laughs> it is just like it goes on forever yeah yeah <laughs> Yes. That was one thing that hit me in this viewing is that because they're sitting in the living room and he goes, do you want to ask me any questions? And they're just kind of like, no. And he's like, don't you want to know what I do? And they're like, no. No. And then he tells them anyway. And it's like, oh, he wants them to be impressed by him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they're just like, whatever, dude, you know, it's it's your money. (laughs) If you want to talk, sure, go ahead. (laughs)
1: Yeah, they're so not impressed. And there's like, it really brings out that sort of strange insecurity that Patrick Bateman has where it's like not enough for him to have this job and this apartment and look the way that he does. He needs it to be like witnessed and reflected back at him and for everyone to be so impressed with him all the time and he rarely gets that like really nobody in his world is that impressed with him at all including these women and then the sex scene when he's like videotaping them and he's looking at himself in the mirror the whole time and like pointing at his own reflection (laughs) and is oh. just like when I think of like bad sex, it's like that right there. It's like sex with a narcissist right there.
0: Yeah, because it's just all about how great he looks to him. And he's like, Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Look at me. And it's like, Okay. <laughs> There's this like queerness about it too, because he's got yeah. two
1: women and he's barely paying attention to them, but he's like looking at himself and his abs and his, and he looks great. Like, don't get me wrong. But- oh,
0: yeah. <laughs> it's like he just wants to fuck himself Mm -hmm. yeah it's definitely a performance for himself which Mm -hmm. is very odd but I mean he's a narcissistic serial killer so I guess it's maybe not that odd (laughs) (laughs) oh one of my favorite running jokes is that he has to return videotapes
1: oh my god yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) Like so he, he just, like, leaves scenes all the time. And he's
1: like, I have to return some
0: videotapes. I quote that all the time for no reason. <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm going to tell people from now. Where are you going? I have to return some videotapes. Um, <laughs> yeah, because when the... Um, Detective asks him where he was the night of Paul Allen's disappearance. He's like, "I was probably returning videotapes." It's like all night. I mean, <laughs> how long does it take? And then when um, he breaks up with Reese Witherspoon, she's like, "Where are you going?" He goes, "I have to return some videotapes." Do you think like the kids these days even know
1: what that means? They're just like, "Why would you? What's a videotape, and why would you return it? And where?" <laughs> like,
0: oh, that yeah, <laughs> take some explanation. Yeah, back from our day. <laughs> It's funny to me because this really is a period piece now. Yes,
1: it is like historical fiction.
0: (laughs) Yeah, with the shoulder pads in the suits and a lot of the fashion and stuff. It's like, oh, yeah, rich, fashionable people. But yeah, not today's fashion.
1: (laughs) It's funny watching this now because I just finished writing this book um, for Audible with three other authors, um, Vanessa Lilly, Kimberly Bell, and Kate Holohan. We wrote this book together called Young Rich Widows that's set in the 80s, um, and it's coming out next year. And so we've been watching, like as we were working on this, we were all watching all of these movies from the 80s. And then I watched American Psycho back like when we were first starting the drafting process to just to kind of get more of that 80s aesthetic. But it is a very specific thing in terms of everything is just like the volume is turned up, like everything in the fashion and the way people act is like so out there and kind of aggressive and over the top. But you can also, I realized in writing a crime novel set back then, like it's so much easier to get away with crimes in the 80s. <laughs> because like they don't I mean they do have cell phones in this because they're rich people they have those like giant cell phones but like it's not like it is today where you can track people everywhere like it was very a a refreshing time to write about crime because there's just so much more you can do that you wouldn't be able to get away with now and I think Patrick Bateman like if you tried to set his story like in the present day it's either like Either it's not happening, which is one of the interpretations of the film, is that this is all in his head, or I think he would get
0: caught pretty quickly. Yeah, I think he would, too, because there's more ways of tracking people and distinguishing people. So even though I have a feeling that there are still groups of guys like this that are kind of indistinguishable, um, if somebody was to go missing like that... I don't think it'd be as easy to be like, oh, yeah, they went to London, and then three people thought that they saw them there, even if they didn't actually.
1: Yeah, it's like, did the Tower ping their cell phone in London? <laughs> Can't get away with it. Yeah. God, now I'm just imagining, like, Patrick Bateman's Instagram. Oh, my gosh. That's terrifying.
0: Oh, it'd probably be a lot of inspirational quotes over pictures of his arms.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, like, he dropped the skincare routine for sure. All his, <laughs> like, workout videos. Wow.
0: Yeah. Oh, he'd probably be an influencer. Probably. Um, oh, I love it too when he makes the uh recording on Paul Allen's answering machine. It's like he doesn't even sound like him. Uh-huh. But that doesn't seem to bother anybody. They're just like, "Oh, he's in London. It's on his machine." He doesn't try very hard to cover that up, which is why it's like
1: part of the reason people think it's all in his head in the movie yeah. is there's so many obvious things. I love that it stays
0: ambiguous the
1: whole time. Like you're not really sure.
0: Yes. Yeah. Because at the end, when he's talking to his lawyer, his lawyer thinks he's somebody named Davis and he's like, no, I'm Patrick Bateman. Don't you even know who I am? Which I think is part of the the central thing of the movie. It's like, no, nobody knows who he is. He And he knows that he's not really anybody. So do you think it happened or do you think it's all in his head or a combination? I feel like it's a combination. That's how
1: I've always interpreted it. Like he killed, he's definitely killed some people, I think. But then that whole final sequence where he's like shooting, he like gets a gun and like shoots this car and it blows up and the the ATM tells him to feed it a stray cat. <laughs> and Like all of that stuff like is so out of the, like, It's just, it's not realistic at all. It's like almost like the movie has a psychotic break at that point. Yeah. And it makes everything else, you just look at it in a different way. You're like, wait, what? Like, what's happening here? so I don't know I think he has killed some people but not in as like smooth or interesting or like well thought out a way as he w- has been like presenting it earlier in the movie if that makes sense like yeah. he presents it like he's got this whole plan and he lures them to his apartment and he's got his like cool raincoat on and he covers everything up with plastic and um, but even with that there are moments of unreality earlier in the movie like when he's uh, killing Paul Allen with the axe he's got his raincoat on and he gets all spattered with blood but there's this white wall and this giant picture behind him that's all like a mostly white canvas that has not a spot on it and you would think I mean I'm not like a blood spatter expert but you would think that that would get some blood on it if it was really happening so I feel like there are these little things threaded through the
0: movie where you're like
1: wait a second that doesn't seem quite right like whatever he's presenting
0: to us is not actually what's happening but that doesn't mean he's not a killer I agree with that. Um, Also, because he put newspapers down and newspapers that would just get soaked with blood and go through onto his white carpet and then you're not getting that out. So um, I don't know that that part actually happened or not, but I do feel like he probably has killed somebody. Mm hmm. But yeah, also, you know, since he's telling the story, uh, we tend to make ourselves better in stories that we tell. So, yeah, it would come across more smooth and all together in the way that he would tell it.
1: Well, that's like his whole, I mean, quote unquote, personality he doesn't really have a personality, but that he's trying to tell this story about himself as this cool, successful guy that everyone wants to be. And actually, he's just an
0: indistinguishable loser like everyone else <laughs> no one cares real quick we talked about some of the female characters in the movie but i wanted to talk about um the character she's well, she's played by Genevieve turner who is the co-writer on this elizabeth i think it's in the last scene with the prostitute christy um mm-hmm. right before he's running down the hall with the chainsaw so she plays that part the co-writer does and i thought she was just brilliant as being this totally flippant just taking drugs not caring about anything person I thought she really got into that really well and it was fun to see the one of the writers in the movie that's so
1: wild to me like to be I I know she's an actress as well but to be the screenwriter and then also be in the movie um, and I watched the movie recently with there's a on the blu-ray there's a commentary track from there's one from Mary Heron the director and then there's one by Guinevere Turner where she talks about like playing that role and that she basically had to just be like naked and lying on the floor covered in blood for days on set while they shot all these other scenes and I'm just like as a writer who I just don't want to be perceived ever like I can't imagine (laughs) (laughs) but it's probably fun too to play that role
0: yeah, it was. I mean, maybe not the lying naked covered in blood, but the the parts before that were like the scene where they're drinking on the couch and stuff. She did such a great job. But yeah, acting is such a weird thing because, yeah, you have to do weird stuff like lay there covered <laughs> in blood. And and I'm sure it was cold and boring and it was like, well, you hurry up and film these scenes already. <laughs>
1: But other than that, she basically got to show up and be like hot and hilarious and make out with this other woman and then get murdered by
0: Christian Bale. Like that's a pretty good day at work. (laughs) Oh yeah, definitely. And this was just her second feature that she wrote. And that's crazy to me that, yeah, so good. Let's see, she's she's done a ton of acting. She was in a show called Crazy Bitches that I kind of want to check out now. Oh yeah, based on the title alone, I'm interested. (laughs) She started off life Interesting. Um, She spent the first 11 years as part of the Lyman family, raised in various communes around the U.S. with over 100 members who were uh, devotees of Mel Lyman, who believed they would eventually live on Venus. So like a full on cult. Yeah. Wild. (laughs) Um, And then she also co-wrote the script for The Notorious Betty Page with Mary Heron.
1: Oh, yeah. I've seen that like way back when. I probably got it out from Blockbuster. (laughs)
0: but her first movie, I think it was called Go Fish. I will look that up and put it in the show notes, everybody. Sorry that I don't have that. Uh, But yeah, crazy. And this was also Mary Heron's second feature to make. And it's like, this is so good. And y'all are so new at this. It's amazing. They
1: just had that confidence in like their vision of The book, I think, like that's what really comes across in listening to the commentary tracks or reading interviews with them. Like they just knew the tone they wanted and the way they wanted this character to be portrayed and stuck to it, even when the studio tried to interfere. Cause like that whole thing with Leonardo DiCaprio, I guess it was like the studio wanted him they were going to give him the role and Mary Heron was like, absolutely not. I quit if you hire him. Like I want, I want Christian Bale. And there was a period of time where like she had quit and they were going to make it with Leo and then he dropped out and it kind of came back to them, but she really stuck to her guns. And I have to wonder, cause she hasn't, done a lot in Hollywood since then. Like she's still making movies and she's out there working. But based on this film, like she should be a huge name director now, I think, right? Like she should be like a list and she's not. And I wonder about that. Like if she, because it seems like she kind of got a reputation for being difficult, you know, the favorite thing they like to call women in Hollywood when Mm -hmm. they have opinions. (laughs) But that she was considered kind of difficult because she stood up for her vision in that way and was like, no, that's not the right choice for this movie. I know what I'm doing and just wouldn't bow to that studio pressure. So, I mean, I'm glad she did. And then the movie turned out amazingly, but I don't think it was, it wasn't like fully appreciated at the time that it came out. It was really controversial, as I recall. Like, it was, people weren't really sure what to make of it. And it's this thing that's become more of a cult classic over the years that people are rewatching and appreciating more as time goes on, but it did not launch her career in the way that I think it should have.
0: Oh yeah. If, if this had have had a male director, they would have been getting him for everything. Oh yeah. And it wouldn't have been as good of a movie. Yeah. She has one, two, three, four, five, six movies. One that um, hasn't come out yet. And then she's done some television. I really want to watch the series that she did, Alias Grace, uh, based on the Margaret Atwood book. Um, oh, yeah. I haven't seen that yet. I love that book, though. But, yeah, she hasn't done nearly as much stuff as she should. Yeah, and
1: think about, like, I mean, he was already
0: kind of established in
1: this, but, like, David Fincher directing Fight Club or, I mean, really any young male director who has the slightest hint of vision. Hollywood is just like, he's a genius. Give him all these projects, give him an Oscar. And for women and people of color, like it's much harder. And um, I don't know, I, this movie should have done much more for her than it did. I just don't think that people appreciated it. I mean, there's something to be said for like over time,
0: people appreciating your work of art
1: more, but like as an artist, I think you want to be appreciated right now.
0: Right. Yeah. You, you don't make money later. You need to make you know, a living now and you want to make projects. I'm sure that she had projects that she really wanted to make that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's really a shame. And I mean, I, I don't know, obviously part of it could have been her choice as well, but I have a feeling a lot of it was the system.
1: Well, yeah. It's like, if you, as a woman have any sort of like opinion, you are arguing with the studio about anything, like putting your foot down about anything, then you're difficult. Like that's it. That's, um, like, I oh, was it Catherine Hardwick who directed the first Twilight movie. She, mm. I guess, had some disagreements with the studio and then has like barely worked since then. Like, it doesn't take much where a male director can throw full temper tantrums on the set and like just be a complete monster. And people are like, oh, well, he's just a, you know, a genius and that's his process. And we need to understand. And like women don't get to do that. They don't get to be eccentric geniuses.
0: Yeah, or we can have rules about how they're not allowed to be alone with any of the underage actresses. Um, oh God! But yet, yeah. Let, let's let's give them a major franchise to direct. I hope it's over for him. I do, but I don't
1: think it is. <laughs> Joss Whedon. I'm just yeah. like, what does he have to do? To more and more keeps coming out. But guys like that are like cockroaches. They just keep
0: on going. Yeah, and it's not the first time that this stuff has come out about him. It's just the most. And...
1: Yeah, so many men in Hollywood are legitimately difficult people to work with. Not just like they had a disagreement with the studio once, but like complete assholes and they just keep getting work. It's very frustrating.
0: Yes, especially because a lot of them aren't necessarily as talented as they think they are <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: oh I should say Christian Bale has quite a reputation for being difficult as much as I love him and he's an amazing actor he has you know exhibited some of this behavior in the past like there was that thing years ago where he, that he was caught on video screaming at someone on the crew and like he is an intense guy and I think if he were a woman or really anyone but a white man even as talented as he is if he acted that way it would not work out so well for him but he's he's gotten yeah. away with it
0: it's kind of funny that you mentioned screaming at the crew because that made me think of tom cruise screaming at his crew when they were filming the new mission impossible and then a thing i've read in an article that um he kind of uh, modeled his character on tom cruise a little bit oh
1: yeah i read that too that he because tom cruise Like even before we knew how kind of unhinged he is, like after the whole like Katie Holmes thing, even before that, he always had this sort of maniacal gleam in his eye. Like even (laughs) in those movies in the eighties where he's like the heartthrob. There's something just it's like too intense about him. Like Tom Cruise has that that weird cult leader energy. So I could totally see that. Yeah, it's just a
0: little, I don't know, a little off there. Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. again it's one of those that it was like okay musical interesting um I haven't listened to the music yet I really want to uh but it's one of those in my mind that's kind of like oh they made Rocky into a musical all right sure or you know the King Kong musical they're real big into adapting movies into stage productions now but the music and the lyrics are by Duncan Sheik who also wrote Duncan Sheik Uh (laughs) uh-huh Dunkin' Cheek from the 90s. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um. He also wrote the musical Spring Awakening. Sure. Um, yeah. So you know, big kind of Broadway guy. And then the book by Robert Aguilar-Sacasa. Uh, all this is gonna be in the show notes, guys. I'm sorry, I say all names wrong. The show only ran for 27 performances and 54 regular performances on Broadway. I'm not sure how long the London one ran, but Matt Smith, Doctor Who, played Patrick Bateman in Whoa. London. I can kind of see that actually. Okay, okay. <laughs> And then um, Benjamin Walker played him on Broadway. And Uh, yeah, yeah, I didn't know who he was. And then I saw, oh, he played Abraham Lincoln in Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. Um, Yeah, and he
1: was in um, Bloody, Bloody Andrew Jackson.
0: Ah, yeah. Yeah, very Um, tall. (laughs) (laughs) And then a little fact for musical theater nerds, um, Alice Ripley and Jennifer DeMano. Yeah, there we go, Jennifer DeMano, who were both in... The Broadway production of Next to Normal, which is an amazing musical, or also in the Broadway production of American Psycho.
1: I feel like I must have known there was this musical, but I like just had completely forgotten about it. Like someone must have told me years ago and I blocked it out. I I'm so curious because it actually seems to me like something. I mean, you can make almost anything into a musical, really. Yeah. <laughs> so I can kind of see it, but it's also just like the humor in the novel and then in the movie especially is so specific and so it's like this very skillful balance where like if you go too far in one direction it just becomes absurd and it's not even like satire anymore it's just laughable and i
0: have to wonder if the, if the musical like went too far in that <laughs> yeah. direction, but I'm
1: curious.
0: It was nominated for two Tonys, but I think for like set design and, uh, another design thing, not for any of the acting. Um, okay, but yeah, so it had a very short run. It was one of those that I kind of heard it was going to happen and then it was over. And I doubt there's a filmed version of it, but I'm sure there is a cast recording, um, there you must be somewhere
1: um, I think Brett Easton Ellis when they before even Mary Heron got involved in this project he wrote a screenplay like he adapted the book then they didn't end up using his his script but I think I believe I read an interview with him where he said that his script ended with this like absurdist musical number like that was sort of the psychotic break at the end so maybe it's not so far <laughs> I'm just like can't
0: even imagine this hmm I mean, music does play a big factor into it. He gives us a lot of lectures on um, different artists. So So I think I probably know, but if you were going to grade this movie A through F, what grade would you give it? A for sure. Oh yeah, I think it's great. One of my b- big complaints with a lot of movies and why they get lower grades is because they often have a very white cast, but that's kind of the point of this movie. So that's something that doesn't count off for me. So yeah, I would definitely give it an A too.
1: That's true. It, it is like the rare project that would not really be improved by any sort of diversity because the whole point of it is that they all look exactly alike and are boring and like just... And terrible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. This is like mediocre white men. The movie. It's
0: yeah. just... <laughs> oh my gosh, that's amazing! Yes, that's a <laughs> that's a subtitle for it. American Psycho, mediocre white men. The movie. <laughs> but it's. I just think it's such
1: a brilliant movie. I mean, it could have gone wrong in so many ways. Like oh, there's yeah. just like they were just walking a tightrope with this one and they managed to make it work um and the fact that more people keep discovering it as time goes on and like you can watch it so many times and still see new facets i i I mean to me that's the mark of a really great movie and i think it's going to be like taught in schools years from now is like representative of the era i just think it's brilliant
0: oh yeah So do you have a recommendation of what somebody should read or watch after this? Hmm. Well, my go-to
1: serial killer book recommendation, besides my book, They Never Learn, is um, Love is Red by Sophie Jaff. Have you read that? Oh, I have not. It is a very, like, dark and strange and hypnotic book that revolves around a serial killer who kind of, like sees people's auras like he sees them as different colors and he's trying to like taste the rainbow I guess (laughs) that's terrible I'm sorry Sophie (laughs) but it's it's really great it's like um just this dark and seductive book there are incredible sex scenes in it which I personally love um Trigger warning for basically everything in this one, but I just, I love the writing style and it, I've read it a couple of times. And like, even when I knew how it was going to end, it's one of those books that I was like flipping through, like, oh my God, like, are they going to get away? And I'm like, you know, what's going to (laughs) happen, but it's one of those books
0: that just gets in your, in your head and won't let go. So yeah, I love that one a lot. Okay. I'm adding that to my reading list. Thank you. So my, I actually have two recommendations. One is in line with the uh murdery thing and the other is just an extra recommendation my first one is killing words from 2003 it's a spanish psychological thriller and the reason i picked this one is first it um is directed by a woman. It's based on a play that was written by a guy. A mild-mannered psychopath plays mind games with a woman he has tied to a chair in his basement. Hmm. So it fits in with the serial killer thing, but it also has... Um, our theme of women directing men. Um, Love
1: it. I've never heard of that. i got to check that out.
0: I will put all the names of everybody in the show notes so that we can see the director and everything. Because again, I pronounce everybody's names wrong. And then my second recommendation is The Normal Heart, directed by Ryan Murphy and written by Larry Kramer. It's based on the 1985 play of the same name. Um, because there was a line right before the very funny line of... Uh, Um, I'm doing drugs in the bathroom. They were talking about how if you could just get AIDS from having sex with a person, then you could get anything from another person. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is during the AIDS crisis. Um, Early on, before people completely understood what was happening, even. Well, and especially
1: like Patrick Bateman and his friends, like it wouldn't have affected them as directly right away. So they would be very flippant about it. Totally fits.
0: (laughs) Yeah, this. This uh, was a TV series that they did for HBO, a series of two episodes, um, and it's about the AIDS crisis in New York between 1981 and 1984, and it's very sad but very powerful, and I feel like it gives some good context to what's going on at that time anyway I worked on a production of it a couple years ago and so I'm very familiar with it and it's it's fantastic this one stars Mark Ruffalo and Jason Bomber, and they're really great in it it's one awesome. of the few things Ryan Murphy's done that actually is really good <laughs> <laughs> he uh yeah I have kind of a love-hate relationship with him I'll say that oh <laughs> uh, yeah I have a, I have a friend and we've talked to about him at length because we both feel like he starts off strong and then things just kind of go downhill
1: yeah yeah he does start off strong though like really interesting ideas and in all of his shows and then it just kind of devolves but you know i'd always rather see something like interesting that goes too big and doesn't work than something that plays it safe so i will say that for him he like really goes for it
0: yes that is very true Real quick, I'm going to gush about your books because everybody needs to read them. Um, Temper is fantastic. Uh, you should read this. It's set in Chicago, which is super fun if you're actually going to, you know, go to Chicago when you can. It's nice to, I, I love it because I was picturing some of the streets and everything uh, as I was reading it, and it's set in the theater scene, and it's nice and twisty and sexy and um, all the wonderful things, and then... I have been reading They Never Learn, which is just incredible. And everybody needs to go pick that up so they can read it before the show comes out.
1: Thank you. How far are you in it? I just like to picture where people are.
0: (laughs) So I just got, I I started reading it um, a little while ago and then my parents got better and I had to move home to help take care of them. So I haven't been reading very much lately, but I got to the point where it kind of, I don't want to say anything that would spoil anything for people. Where the storylines um, come together? Yes.
1: <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> um, I just always like to know if people are past that part yet. Because, like, what can I
0: say? But I won't say anything on the air because no spoilers. I'm not always great at picking up things, but often I do. And I didn't see what was coming there. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Yay, I'm glad I got you. A lot of people have predicted it, but I think um,
1: thriller readers especially are so smart and like they just guess things all the
0: time. Someone's glad when I get one over on someone. (laughs) So yes, you definitely need to pick up both of those. And then I'm so excited about this new thing that you told me about that's coming out next year, you said?
1: Yeah, we don't have an official release date yet, but they're thinking early 2022 God, I almost said 20- I almost said early 2021. And I'm like, we are already past that. Like, what is time? <laughs> yeah, that's called Young Rich Widows. And it'll be coming
0: out from Audible um, uh, at some point next year. Excellent. Where can people find you on social media? Or what do you have coming up?
1: I'm at LaneFargo.com and then at lanefargo on both Twitter and Instagram. But if you find me there these days, you should yell at me to go work on my (laughs) next book because I shouldn't be on there. Um, I'm working on a sort of modern Gothic book right now that I'm hopefully, hopefully it's going to be my book three, but the pandemic has thrown off my writing game a lot. I think a lot of people are suffering from that right now, just like very distracted so it's taking me a while but it's coming along
0: well awesome i'm very excited about that because i do love gothic things so um i'm working on a gothic mystery comedy thing uh with my writing partner right now as a screenplay so it seems to be in the air
1: I think so. Yeah. Um, so like, obviously last year, Mexican Gothic was this huge hit and that book was <sighs> incredible, but I feel like there might be even more Gothic things coming out. Cause like, what is more Gothic than being trapped in your house with all your loved ones for a year plus? Like that is, <laughs> well, like a disease rages outside. I mean, like we've all been living a Gothic
0: novel. That is very true. Year. Yeah. Uh, Well, awesome. I'm, excited for that when it comes out yeah thank you so much for being on this show today it was so awesome to get to talk to you in real life and not just on twitter yay yeah thank you for having me this was fun
1: thank you for listening to this episode of fatal fems like us on facebook at fatal fems and follow us on twitter and instagram at fatal underscore fems Have a question or comment for the show? Shoot us an email at fatalfimspodcast at gmail.com. Episodes are now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or whatever podcatcher you use. Don't forget to leave us a rating while you're there. If you like what you've heard, check out our Patreon page. We have different sponsorship levels with perks that will allow us to make more content and better quality episodes. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Because if you didn't, the consequences could be fatal. Thanks for listening.